You're listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, my lovely people. Welcome to the last episode in this series, and what a showstopper I have for you. Today, I'm going to introduce you to the, well, just fabulous Catherine Johnson, who wrote that little known hit, you may have heard of it, Mamma Mia. We can be so self destructive with this idea of, you know, I'm not very good and it shouldn't be doing this or um and how anxious it made me for so long and if it hadn't been for being picked up young ish you know I probably would have stopped and would have always regretted perhaps oh you know maybe I should have tried to do this so what I think is but still do it anyway Catherine discovered her love of writing when she was six years old. She wrote all the time, but little did she know that when she was working behind the counter in her local record shop in Yate, something she wrote then would help pave the way to her writing one of the biggest musicals and films of all time. Catherine won a competition and started writing plays. They were shown at the Bush Theatre in London, Bristol Old Vic, and then she went on to write for television. But it was when she met the producer Judy Kramer over a couple of tea well everything changed Mamma Mia the musical has been seen by over 65 million people all over the world on its release the film made history as the highest grossing movie of all time at the UK and Irish box office but what's even more special is the musical and the film were created by three women who formed a special and fabulous friendship Catherine's work has received an Olivia Award a Tony Award a Golden Globe nomination, a BAFTA, a National Film Award, the list goes on. There are many, many more. But here's what's so special about Catherine. She's just so humble, kind, open and thoughtful. She tells us what really happened when she met Bjorn and Benny. She talks about the moment she found out Meryl Streep was going to star in the film and how friendships have seen her through all her next chapters. Catherine is a real superstar in every sense of the word and I'm so excited to introduce her to you. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Catherine Johnson. Catherine Johnson, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but welcome to the next chapter. I am so delighted and thrilled to have you as my guest. Well, thank you very much, Ali. It's a pleasure to be invited. Ah, well, we met a long time ago and your story, I mean, it's one of, it's just such an incredible story. So I'm so happy to share it. So we begin as ever with the prologue. Now, am I right in saying, I think you you grew up in Wickwall, but you were born in Suffolk. Yes, yes, that's right. And Cornwall in between. Um, so I have a lot of claims, I guess. But uh, yeah, Wickwar is where I spent most of my childhood, teen years, okay. and then Yate. So I'm, I'm very South Gloss. Yeah, yeah. So for those listening, because we do have lots of lovely Bristol listeners, but other people as well. So that's sort of out, on the outskirts of Bristol, really, like you say, it's South Gloucestershire, mm. near Wooten under Edge, that yeah. kind of area. So yes. 
so as I understand, at school, so often we talk about what, what we were like at school. Now, when you were sort of around the age of six, I think you started to realise how much you liked writing then. And you were, you were at that age, you were a very well-behaved, studious child. Yes, I was. So this was when I was living in Cornwall and we had um, an English lesson and we were just asked to write an essay, um, which was my first attempt at writing a story and I just remember how excited I was to be able to put words into characters mouths you know I was um I was a very studious child I was very keen on doing well but I do remember I wrote the word poo <laughs> not as in you know poo like that but it was the it was a bumblebee who and the sentence I remember was Pooh replied to the bumblebee rudely. And I remember the, having the pleasure of thinking, I can do this on paper. I might not be able to say it out loud, but I can do this on paper. And um, I didn't think of myself as a particularly gifted writer. I just knew it, it was what I wanted to do. Mm, that's amazing and at that age as well isn't it to have that and was it did you like the actual feeling as well of like writing on paper did you like that yeah I still do I think physically working stuff out on paper is really important my right hand is like part of my mind in many ways you can go into a bit of a sort of zone of not thinking and just letting the hand do automatic writing it um, that doesn't sound too spooky. I just always, yeah, I loved creating. Um, later on, by the time we'd moved to Wickwall, my best friend and I were writing the school play wow. for the whole school to perform at the end of year. And, you know, it's very, very self-indulgent. We wrote and starred in our own shows. But, um, it, yeah, it just felt like the right thing to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. So how were you when you moved to Wickwall? Um, I was probably, I always get a bit confused now, I was about eight years old, I think. Okay, okay. okay. So it was, you know, I'd grown, grown up quite close to the coast and then we moved to a small village in Gloucestershire and so it was quite, quite different for me um, and I had to overnight learn how to speak in a Gloucestershire accent because of course I stood out at school. <laughs> Very much not having an accent so yeah I could speak pure Wickwall by the end of the first week I think. Yeah I bet you I bet you can and did you do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah I have a younger brother and sister my brother's quite close to me in age and um, Liz my sister is six years younger. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah we, we're still close we're, we're still very good friends not quite so much when uh, we grew up perhaps yeah. but, <laughs> it's often yeah. a way but that was, yeah. that was a big thing really for you I ate to move and then like you say to go in and have like a whole different identity so to 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 do that to be doing the school plays that was I can imagine that was sort of a bit like a savior in some ways yeah um well I'm luckily I had met my best friend Carol within the the first few days of moving in um we were up at Wickwall Playground, the centre of all entertainment in Wickwall, and there was a girl playing on the swings, and my dad sort of nudged me and said, go on, go and speak to her, which I was shy to do, but dad was always pushing in that way. And we hit it off, and we were friendly, you know, for all our school years. And we kind of, um, I don't think I'd have been 
able to do this stuff without having someone else to do it with. So we would put on shows in the village, you know, we would throw a jumble sale and charge people to come in and then also charge people to buy our rubbish. And um, it, it just felt like a sort of almost in a blight in childhood. It was, you know, it was, it was just very natural for us to be doing stuff and, um, and then that moved into creating stuff, you know, writing stories together, writing plays together. As I say, I needed a collaborator. I needed, I needed Carol mm. a lot to, mm. to help me through all that. Mm. Well, thank goodness for Carol. But I'm sure, you know, I mean, just how amazing that you would have, you know, what you did go on to do and these seeds were being sown then. That's incredible. So then, then you went to, on, on to secondary school. Now, I think I'm all right to say this, Catherine, because I've seen you speak about this a few times, that when you were at secondary school, perhaps you got a little bit more, shall we say, rebellious. I did, yes, because I kind of discovered that, you know, working hard (laughs) didn't always lead to having a lot of fun. (laughs) I I just, I mean, you know, I was the kind of person who was always questioning why I had to do stuff. Um, And... Uh, you know, I couldn't entirely understand why I had to go into lessons I didn't like. So my my rebelling was kind of quiet, but it was not um, overlooked. So if I decided to skip a lesson because I was bored, it it turned out that wasn't appreciated by the the head teacher. So (laughs) I spent a lot of time standing in the corridor outside the head teacher's office People, you know, expected to see me there. Uh, And yet I still, in an awful way, I think, thought, no, this is fine. You know, I'm doing what I I need to do. You know, I need to say, no, I don't want to do this. So I'm not going to do it. You're showing spirit, Catherine. That's what we were saying. That's a lovely way of putting it. Because I'm reflecting and thinking, what a little arse. No, no, obviously I was spirited. You yes. were spirited. Thing is, if that was my 12-year-old son, I mean, he would agree with you, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I perhaps wouldn't call him spirited and nor would my husband. But yeah, you could call him what I said. Maybe, maybe, yes. if I'm honest, Catherine. But, I, but looking back with hindsight, it was showing your character and your way of doing things your own way. Yeah, and I think the reason why I talk about it is not to say, oh, you know, wasn't I great? I was spirited and rebellious. It's more to say, you know, the next bit, obviously, that I was expelled from school. So that was, you know, leading up to that. There was a story behind that. I wasn't just expelled overnight for one misdemeanor. I was a pain to the system. Um, But I think why I talk about it is because I want other people like me who may not have got off to the best start in the world to understand that you can actually turn stuff around for yourself without losing your spirit exactly. <laughs> on the way you definitely didn't do that but yeah that's what i mean you were so you were expelled at 16 and as i understand you went into school that day with a halter neck top on is that right yeah and we actually had already finished our exams we myself and a couple of friends were just walking around the country lanes again that's all there was to do really Um, and we decided to pop into school and just find out when we were due back officially and the headmaster saw us and uh, being you know as I say really really fed up with us and our behavior by that time you know ordered us off the the school 
school property and I responded with you know something that's unrepeatable really and by the time I got home he'd been on the phone to my father and said Catherine's expelled she's she doesn't come back to school anymore and had you planned to go back to school yeah yeah I had yes (laughs) I hadn't planned to get expelled it wasn't you know I'd I had my own system. I thought, you know, I will work hard at the exams. I'll do well in the exams. I'll go to college, blah, blah. But um, a couple of things, you know, just before I was about to do the exams, one of the teachers came and told me I was on detention. So in the spirit of, oh, I'm not having that. I just put my pen down and didn't do the exam. It's only later you look back and think, I was only hurting myself, really. Mm. I wasn't hurting him. Mm. But um Yeah, I just allowed myself to be rubbed up the wrong way Mm. a lot when I was younger. So, yeah, I had planned to go back. Um, My parents were going to take this to the education board. And I said, you know what, don't don't bother. It's it's fine. It's over. And that was it for me in education. Goodness me. What did your dad say to you when you got that call? And when you know, you what did he say to you? Well, he was on my side, which is possibly the worst of it, which is possibly why I got away, you know, with behaving like this. They did support me. I mean, they didn't always support me. They did tell, you know, point out a lot of times of how I was wasting my education and that. But um, I think they deep down thought I was bright enough to pull it all back. And when that opportunity was taken away from me, as it were, like then, um, and and I, I think they just didn't want me to have the stigma of being expelled from school either. Um, so dad was actually furious with the teacher and not with me. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it, I think, yeah, it just clarified for me that what I had been thinking for five or six years prior to that is that... Um, Anything really regimented does doesn't fit me. I'm not good at being around people all the time. I'm um, I'm an introverted extrovert. I can keep up socialising for about an hour or so, and then I need a little space, and that's not built into a school day. So I really feel for so many of us who are out there who just get overwhelmed by having to be around so many people all the time Mm -hmm. and i think that might be why a lot of kids do misbehave because they just want to escape Mm -hmm. i totally agree and also the pressure and we, we talk about this a lot you know the structure at school especially now it's sort of quite dated and also, not, and it's very one size fits all, which we, again, we've mm-hmm. talked about this a lot on this podcast, but it just goes to show that, doesn't it? That, I mean, it is, thank you for talking about it because it does go to show, I mean, I mean, put it this way, it gave you fuel for that writing that we're going to come on to. I mean, it, that, <laughs> that spirit was turning into character and who knows where it led, but we will find that out. But, but yeah, yeah so, um, and so, so just to clarify, so you were 16. So had you taken like your... O-levels yeah. as such. So you've yeah, taken those. Yeah, I my O-levels and I've taken a couple of CSCs as well. Um, and I did kind of what I expected. I did well in English and history and uh, didn't do so well in the subjects that I, um, well, I'm going to say like deliberately uh, I, because the, I did with a couple of them just deliberately not try but I also wasn't that very good at anything (laughs) to do with maths or science I never grasped the concept Mm. 
Um, and I was also thrown out of a lot of maths and science lessons. So um, it's not surprising that I'm still quite as thick as I am when it comes to maths. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sure you're not thick, but I, I am. Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, I have to admit it. And I don't say it with any pride. I, you know, I am a, both my parents were teachers. Okay. And I really do believe in education and, you know, whenever you come to it in life, it's, I think it's, it's onward, always there's opportunity to learn. Mm. That's amazing that they were teachers and were so understanding yeah. as well. That's yeah, really well, they, they were both very understanding people in, in many ways. And um, my mum in particular, my dad taught in adult education um and but mum taught in a secondary school not whilst I was at school but later on she went back to teaching and um I think a lot of her pupils she taught in Chicken Sobbury um really you know found her she, her approach refreshing because she was understanding of the kind of naughtier kids uh, as well as encouraging to those who were who were bright and uh, mm. you know went on to do pretty well in life. Mm, amazing, so much like empathy, which makes such a difference. It, you know, it really does because yeah, it can yeah. be so different. We always have, you know. Hopefully, everybody has one good teacher who they can look back on. I had an English teacher who, you know, I sometimes I objected to him starting our lessons with a poem by Seamus Heaney. But he kind of got me and he got that I was creative. So I really, yeah, I really liked him. Mm, that's amazing. Amazing. And yet, so all the time, though, you were you were writing? Yeah, you know, I just, it felt to me like a very natural thing to do. I mean, people talk a lot now about writing and creativity and doing your morning pages and how helpful it is, you know, particularly to mental health and emotional mm. health. And I think maybe, you know, I kind of understood that on some level, even back then. So whenever I felt upset about anything, I would just fill up a notebook. Mm. But I also carried on writing stories. And um, oddly, I, I, I wanted so much to write, but I didn't know how I would ever get into that becoming my profession. So I didn't think to myself, yeah, I'm going to be a writer. I, it was like, I'm probably going to have to be something else, but writing is just what I do mm. day to day mm. because it's very, very natural for me to do this. Mm. It was like part of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say it was like breathing for me in a way that I didn't let a day go by without writing something. And of course, now that I am professional, I let many days go by without writing something yeah. and then beat myself up for it. Uh, so. That's the rebel in you still sometimes coming out there. But we... Yeah, maybe so, yes. It probably is. So, and, and actually, before we move on, I should just say, because Yates, um, like we, I work, uh, I've got a very close friend at work, Danette, who I think we mentioned before that yes. she comes from Yates and you know her. And she, she Yates is a very, very close-knit community, isn't it? It's a lovely yeah. community. And yeah. I, she remembers you, I think you worked in a... Was it, was it a record shop? Hayes Record. Records, yes, by the post office on the shopping centre. And yeah, you know, those were, that was a fantastic time for me, actually, because I, I made a lot of good friends there, you know, that I'm still really friendly with. And I, music has always been very important to me. 
um, I was working in an accountant's office and went to see a punk gig in Bristol, you know, the first one I'd ever seen and came out of there, you know, having found my tribe, as it were, you know, of like-minded rebellious people who didn't necessarily want to follow a career path, um, you know, that wanted to be creative, but hadn't been to university. So, you know, the whole punk ethos of um, anyone can pick up an instrument and play, it said to me, anyone can pick up a pen and write. Mm. I don't have to have gone to Cambridge or Oxford or Exeter or Bristol or anywhere. I can actually do this. I have, I have got a voice. And so I think it was, my first step was to check in the job at the accounts office and move down to Kays. I got a job working there and that was my sort of first real push. Uh, okay. Now I'm, I'm going to, I am going to write, I can be a writer. Mm, okay. So, so when Jeanette saw you, she said, cause you were always writing then. So, so when, when, how old were you then at this stage now, Catherine, how old were you? I'm 18, 19, I think. Um, And yeah, I wrote, I was writing short stories. I had one read on Radio Bristol. That was a great achievement for me. Uh, I had a couple published in um, Women's Own magazine. Um, But I was writing, you know, for those particular places I wasn't really writing something that was coming straight from my heart and soul it was just like oh that is a romantic story for women's own um but yeah you know the 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 thing that um stands out for me and it reappeared later on in my life because um you know in a way that sort of filters through everything is that there was um in sounds magazine the music magazine had a kind of you know send in a poem or a song or something like that to be included on an album and i wrote a poem about all the kids who used to hang around the shop all the time and never heard anything more about it um, until probably about a year or so later somebody in the shop went oh cap cap we're all on this is this anything to do with you so they haven't put my name on it but all the other names, the names of the people that I knew, they were all there on this album sleeve. Brilliant. So Amazing. Um, Amazing. the reason why that comes back is years later, I wrote a, a play for the Bristol Vic called Too Much Too Young. And I wrote about that particular experience of being there and somebody saying, you've written about us. And we're on this record sleeve and feeling that immense kind of thrill and pride that even though I didn't have my name on it, everyone knew it was me, obviously, and I knew it was me. And that was kind of a real, wow, I can do this moment. That's magical. That's completely magical. That's amazing. And so so you, I think I read somewhere that you were even thinking at some point, I mean, you were doing some different jobs as well, but you, at one point you were even considering being a probation officer. Right. So that takes us into Bristol now where I have by now, so I was, I'd married young, that marriage had ended. I'd met Paul, who's the, was 
the father of my children um, and we were living together in Bristol and I was doing, yeah, like you say, various things. Still wanting to write, but still, how, how do I get into this? Um, and I had Hugh by then, my oldest, and I was pregnant with Miv, my second. And I just thought that that was the real spur. I wanted to be able to, you know, really make something of my life for them, I guess, this non non-existent baby and my toddler. And there was, uh, again, I saw an advert in the um, Evening Post which said there was a playwriting um, competition between, you know, Bristolvik and ITV were combining to set up this playwriting award. Um, and I kind of thought, you know, this is like a, a sign to me. I've, I'm going to spend a year really working at writing. And if nothing comes of it, then I'm going to just go back to college or attend college for the first time. And yeah, probation officer was one of the things I thought I might fancy doing, but I never had to because uh, I entered the competition and quite unexpectedly, I won it. That's amazing. And this was for Ragdoll, is that right? Yeah, so this was the, the I, I was writing a play that was a bit drawing room comedy that was a bit what I thought was like I had tried earlier is this what the judges will want? I'll have a go at writing this. And I went, I was going to the theatre a lot with my dad at that time. And um, we went down to see Jim Cartwright's Road at Bristolvic Studio one evening whilst I would, was just making the early stages of this other play. And that was um, a play that's set in Bolton and it's lots of characters very realistic, very poetic. It's It was an absolute blast. I'd never seen anything like it before. So I came home and decided, okay, I'm going to write something that I know about. So Ragdoll was set in Wick War. Um, wasn't based on people I knew, but it meant that I could use the the dialogue, you know, could come through the, the way I spoke and I could write, yeah, something that really came from my heart. Um, and, and that's what made the difference, I think. Instead of trying to write to please other people, I was trying to write to please myself. Mm, that makes such a difference, isn't it? And it's so hard to do this. I say this as somebody who, you know, is at the sort of different end of the scale to you. You do, you always have in mind, oh, you should write to what the market is, but you shouldn't, yeah. should you? You shouldn't because it's, because it's, it's when it comes from within, it, you get that unique voice, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we all have. And we, um, you know, aren't always encouraged to use our unique voice, you know, you know, especially moving on now to when you're, you are working professionally, there is always that kind of desire to please the people you're working for. Whereas, you know, in some ways, you know, your voice better than, than they might know, mm -hmm. they know the market, but you, you have a conviction that Hey, this is this will work promise i promise you it will mm. it goes back to it goes back to it though doesn't it because like the connection and when you say like going back to when you worked in the shop and the community and you understood people and then how they felt when they saw the song you know it's just understanding people and that connection and somebody reading or watching that's when you pull them in isn't it because they can relate yeah, yeah. and isn't that 
you know, very important in what we do is we need to have an audience, whether as an author or as a playwright, you know, you need an audience to relate in some way. I mean, I do personally, and I'm pretty sure you feel the same. You know, I don't want people to sit there thinking, oh, that's very clever, mm. but it was a bit over my head. Yeah. You know, there is no danger of that with me, fortunately. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, sometimes I think, oh, I wish I knew more about this subject. Yeah. But Well, all I say is, Catherine, never write a play about maths from what you've said. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we're steer clear of that. Steer clear. Luckily, there are a lot of people that are doing that, so I think you know that's that's safely covered. That's all right. That's all right. And it's like you said because you said when you went to see uh, see that play, it was like you you realise that again, it's like when you write about messy lives and lives are messy, you know, and it's it's tapping in to all of us anyone listening to this now they've got their their parts and you know you do, they don't necessarily want people to know about those parts mm -hmm. but actually when you see it communicate you're like you know what look it's not just me I'm not on my own that's magic yeah I agree and and that's connection isn't it and that, that you know again creatively but day-to-day -day connection is so important in you know little ways or big ways so yeah you know every time I sit down to write if I'm Thinking about an audience, it can be overwhelming, but there's always something in my mind that's saying, what, what, what do you want? Do you want someone there to say, oh God, I know what this feeling and yeah, of course I do. You know, I want, want people to feel that the things I write are speaking to them. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that, I think lots of people would agree that what you do does. Yes. I mean, fortunately I, I, did win the competition but I didn't know how to write a play really um you know it was a mess so even you know in retrospect I, I was so elated to win but there was so a kind of like little niggle in me thinking oh, it's not good enough to go on stage I knew enough about theatre to know it wasn't good enough to go on stage and that's when I got learned that actually it's all about rewriting mm. that although it wasn't good enough to go on stage I was introduced to Terry Johnson the writer director who in one masterclass helped me to work out what, what all the faults were and how to take it on to the next draft and it was that next draft that attracted Terry to directing it and to Paul Unwin the producer to say yeah this is this is going to go on so um you know you I get hung up on a first draft I think everyone does but I also at the same time know that the, the proper writing in a way mm. starts second or third or even fourth fifth or sixth draft it's it's a slog it's not just sitting down as we know yeah. and it all comes out perfectly the first time mm. so that's what happened there and I sat back and waited for the job offers to come in and there weren't any yeah. however there was an approach from a very nice woman who was the partner of the designer of ragdoll and she said you know soho theater are looking to do some rehearsed readings have you got anything and i didn't have anything that was the only play i'd ever written so in about a week i scrabbled together um a play which was set in Western um, and there was a rehearsed reading at Soho. Some London producers came to see it. 
um, including producers from the Bush Theatre, who were encouraging and said, you know, it's it needs work, but we'd like to have a look at it when you've done some work. So that was my next stage, rewriting that play and getting a phone call from them to say, we really like what you've done and we'd like to produce this. Wow. So, you know, each time the, the feeling of, I can't quite believe this is happening, um, having gone from an, an, a not a writer to a Brislovic writer to a Bush writer in a very short time, it was a real whirl of um, beyond imagining actually yeah. beyond what I'd ever imagined for myself I can well well I can well imagine but so just going back to a rehearsed reading forgive me Catherine what is that what's a rehearsed reading so that's just taking so instead of you know a, a lovely full play with rehearsals of three weeks or so and all the actors embedded in the character and the director and a set and costumes it's say in my case it was five actors sitting on a stool reading the script mm. um so it's a way i think for people to hear their own work um and you, know, you really start to see what's wrong with it when it's read out loud like that but often it's a way too for producers to take a punt on a show without investing any money in it if you like because you can see um you know whether there is potential there and luckily for me the bush could see the potential in this play about mm. some lads in western that's amazing but also going back because i mean this i mean going back to what you were saying how you were at school and you said you know when you didn't do the exam and you were only sort of hurting yourself it goes to show though because you were in a different environment but you complete i mean there are some people who do say oh i'm not going to rewrite it and this is but you know they fight it but i think there is something to be said and it's so hard I know but to have to go back to the drawing board and think do you know I've got to make this better and to focus on what's good and make it even better that takes a, a certain spirit so you really had sort of got out of your own way as such and you were you know you were in the right environment and now you were starting to thrive yeah well I always you know loved writing and if I'd probably just been left to write at school I'd have been fine yeah. I don't you know I know uh, I've, I find actually the first draft is is the real pain. I really enjoy rewriting in a way. You know, I've learned to. Terry had a saying which isn't wasn't his. I'm not sure whether Chekhov said it first or who, but it's about learning to murder your babies, mm. and that's what you do. You look at the script and you look at those words and dialogue that you've sweated hours over, and you just go, "Oh, that's not working," and mm. cut three pages and. Uh, if you're too attached, then it's it's not freeing you up to the potential for what could be there in its place. And and that's the part I really love. I kind of really like rewriting. So mm. yeah. Um, and they, were, you know, they were nobody was saying if you rewrite this, we're going to produce your place. So I wasn't having that carrot dangled at me, but there was still a sense of they're interested enough. They might read it and tell me what is wrong with it when they've read it mm -hmm. you know just getting a foot in the door i didn't know any other way to do it because you know i didn't have connections in the business and uh yeah i just just didn't know what else to do but be the best i possibly could be from the place i was actually in yeah. 
just keep going you weren't going to stop and keep going I will think of that when I'm I'm 42,000 words into my first draft of my fourth book and yeah. oh Catherine it's not you know I, I was like oh this is a this is hard and b this is so bad but I'm gonna remember this I'm gonna remember this anyway yeah. it's not yeah. about me it's it's, it's not bad <laughs> at all it's potential there you go I'm gonna think of that tomorrow morning when I sit down this has got potential so I mean so I mean talk about potential then so off you went so so then were you mainly doing play, plays and what was that like that first time that you saw your play being performed to an audience what was that like for you um it's both was still is excruciating um and also you know incredibly brilliant you know, there's, there's, I remember with Ragdoll when um, I was sitting at the back of the theatre with Terry and the woman in front of us, her shoulders started shaking and I remember whispering to Terry, it's not supposed to be funny. And he <laughs> said, she's crying. I said, oh, okay, that's fine. And he said, no, you wait till people start really laughing at your work. That's where the addiction starts. And he was absolutely right. I think being in a theatre where an audience are laughing at a play that I've written, generally because the actors are making them laugh, and, but that is, yeah, the most heartwarming feeling in the world. Mm, and worth all those moments of, oh, I, this is tough. It's just so, it must be so, yeah. so worth it. Yeah. But you need, you do need those tough moments to learn what isn't ever going to work. Mm. You know, this, I've written quite a few things that I've been lucky enough to have produced, but I've written a hell of a lot of things that I've, that have never seen the light of day mm. some were okay but a lot that were abandoned just because a good idea doesn't always translate into a workable script mm. and did you how did you pick yourself up oh uh, hate everybody is the hate producers hate the unfairness of the world get another idea and then go okay but this one this one's really yeah was I think I mourn the characters a little bit as well you know I feel especially when I've invested a lot of time with them I you know they're real to me mm. and then sometimes I think well you know they don't have ruined it anyway so they'll always be special my characters and no one will ever yeah. see them yeah there's a lot of ways of um making it okay but to be honest it's never really okay no, never. <laughs> I, I i have a bit of cake but i either i mean that's all right for a well, bit but i then... have cake every day anyway so oh, you know okay. that doesn't really count. oh okay but me oh all right i'm gonna perhaps just have it every day like you then i'm gonna do that i'm gonna do that um so then you and also then you got into you were working in television writing i hadn't quite realized this as well casualty biker grove mm -hmm. Love in the 21st century. So you were doing big things in television. How did you get into the television writing? Well, that happened with the Bush because um, for, uh, particularly the BBC being just up the road, you know, that's that's when producers check out the new writing theatres looking for new writing. So um, I got my agent at that time. And uh, yeah, so the casualty producers uh, I think I'm pretty sure it was this way around. They went, they saw my play Boys and Business, 
being set in Bristol anyway, as casualty was at the time and still should be. Um, you know, they were down here a lot. So I think it, they kind of saw the sense of using a local writer. So, uh, yeah, that's how I started on casualty, um, which I still think was the hardest job I ever had. It was just a real boot camp in how to create structure and character and story and pace it all out and then be told, oh, you can't do that. You're going to have to completely rewrite overnight. Um, yeah, I had, I was still living in like a little flat with the kids at that time. And I used to have to get all the scenes and cut them out and put them on the floor and see how I could juggle that scene and move it forward or move it back or take it out altogether. I think really the telly years were just when I went, you know, completely insane. Mm. It was, it's, it's a very, it's so brilliant when you've done it. It's so brilliant when you see it, mm. but it is very hard to put it all together. Mm. Mm. And is that because people, so for example, something like cas Casualty, it's a very set way of doing something and with a like you say with a very set structure that you're quite yeah. limited to what you can do you have to is it is it that well it's partly that and I think you know quite rightly so it's it has to be um vetted by the medical experts so I'm not sure what it is now but back then we had um the nurse that was Pete who um the Charlie character was based on there was a doctor and I think an ambulance worker as well. And all three of them would read the script and two of them might come back and say, yeah, this is fine. And then a third one would say that would never happen. Mm. And so then you're, you're stumped, you know, you're wonderfully thought out storyline that's been woven throughout the whole narrative has to go because uh, apparently it would never happen. Mm, and presumably you're under a real tight deadline, so you have to whip up another tragedy. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. And the deadlines were awful, you know. I mean, say that, you know, they probably weren't that bad. They just were so different for me. I was taken into this entirely different world of, you know, as I say, writing overnight. I mean, it wasn't casualty, but something else I was working on. They were giving me notes in the evening while I was trying to get the kids um, meals ready and put them into bed. So I'd do that. I'd rewrite overnight. I'd go out and find an internet cafe the next day um, because didn't have internet back then. Post it. By the time I got home, there'd be a phone call saying, can you rewrite this, this and this? Mm. And that I just like, and I would say it's probably a lot better now, but I still think that it's not an industry that really embraces being a parent. Mm. And, you know, it, I think it could do a lot better still. That was the whole working from home thing. But you, but then with two young children as well and having to be creative around, you know, young children life. Well, it's not big. And, I, you know, I think we can all do it. We just need a bit more support, perhaps, from the people we work with, you mm. know, a little bit more understanding sometimes. But I have never worked any other way. You know, I started writing when the children, when I had Hugh and Miv was born. You know, by the time Miv was born, I was 
doing Ragdoll, you know, it was in production, so I had to be available for rehearsals. So um, I just, uh, you know, I find that most of my creative ideas come to me when I'm doing housework anyway, mm. and not so much when I'm sat in front of the laptop, which is a pain because that's where I really need to be creative. <laughs> so I don't know how it worked, but it did. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for them, I don't think I'd have been so driven. I think I'd have given up perhaps, mm. you know, but there was always this, yeah, coming to the mercenary side of it, I, I have to make money for the children. You know, I was living in a housing association flat when I started and I started to see money coming in that I couldn't imagine having made enough money to put a deposit down on a house but then I did have and so I was always chasing the next mortgage payment you know I would be writing on something but I had to get a commission for something else at the same mm -hmm. time so there was just this you know constant energy I guess of creativity treadmills another word for it um mm -hmm. and yeah you know there was um I couldn't really see a time where I wouldn't be working that intensely yeah um, you were just in the that was the system that was the rhythm of what you were what you were doing absolutely but I, you know i do need to say that what was really important for me was that i had to have something in every project i did that was important to me that i could could you know use my own voice in so that it wasn't like i'm just doing this job because i have to there was always a sense of so where am where am I in this? Where, where's my, where's the thing I can hook onto so I can make it mm. matter to me? And I don't think I could have stuck at things in quite the way I did, unless there was always like an element, even if it was just, you know, a joke somewhere that I really liked. Yeah. That, but, but yeah, it was, um, they were very crazy times um, work-wise. But then those. of course, you know, as you know, I did hit the jackpot work-wise as well, well. Well, which we will now come on to. But I think anyone listening to this again will see that spirit of yours was coming out there, Catherine. You see that when it's channeled in the right way, don't worry if your child isn't going into their lessons. This is what could happen. So, yes. Um, so, that, so moving on. Now, I'm going to let you explain this. How, But how I understand it from what I've read, this all came about from your lovely mentor, but he heard about something about a project shall we say that was happening and I'm going to let you explain yeah so you know again it's this wonderful serendipity and I can even take it back further than that so I'll start with Terry Terry Johnson who gave me my wonderful masterclass. he was directing a film for the BBC um, a TV project and he was working with a producer called Judy Kramer who was trying to find a writer for a musical based on the songs of ABBA and you know she had not found the right person and she approached Terry and he said that's not for me but I know a writer called Catherine Johnson who she you might be interested in her she knew my agent so she got the script of too much too young which began, as you know, the record sleeve in the record shop in Yates, and then as a play in Bristol Old Vic. It wasn't a musical, it was a play with music. The story, the narrative was built around the music. So I think that persuaded Judy that 
I might be a person of interest. I'd had a terrible Christmas. I was um, writing, I'd adapted a book for the BBC. Promises, promises, this is going to be greenlit. I really needed that money. I had a big tax bill. Um, and it all fell through. They decided they weren't going to do those sort of books anymore. So um, I called my agent up at the beginning of the new year in some panic and said, I need something. I've got nothing and I'm skinned. And he called me back two days later and said, I've got your meeting with Biker Grove. Yay! And I've got your meeting with this woman who wants to do a musical based around the songs of other. She's lovely. You'll really enjoy meeting her. And I'm like, yeah, but okay, I'll, I'll meet her because I'm going up anyway for the Biker Grove meeting. Um, when I met Judy for the first time, I found a kindred spirit. I found a friend for life. Uh, we were the same age. We still are the same age. Um, and we just really hit it off. And her enthusiasm for this project really, really rubbed off on me. I started to see that this show could work. However, I still didn't think I was the writer for it. But just spending an afternoon over a cup of tea talking about, you know, maybe it's, you know, I, I said, well, Judy said, I can't actually can't remember which it was now, but it's, they're very distinctly, these songs are young, falling in love songs, or older, falling out of love and disappointment songs. And didn't want it to be linear, didn't want it to be about a couple that we see growing old, you know, so I've, I did suggest mother-daughter, because, you know, I had a daughter, and I thought it would be interesting from that perspective um you know maybe and suddenly i don't know where it came from this is like my guardian writing angel just said the daughter's getting married what if she's wants to invite her dad to the wedding but she doesn't know who he is and obviously it always three is the magic number she has three possible dads but um as i was tentative about saying this idea to Judy I'd gotten on so well with her I kind of didn't want to just like end on a sour note of her going thanks so much but you know I'll be in touch any but then I thought if I get on the train I'll, I'll never say it so I did and Judy just lit up and told me to sit down and we went for it mm. right at our first meeting we had what later became Mamma Mia on the table. It wow. was just an extraordinary meeting of mind, spirit, and um, yeah, happiness. Goodness me. And that was the story. That was the Mamma Mia story there over a cup of tea. Yeah. Wow. I mean, obviously, there are elements of it that changed a great deal um, as we went along. Um, Judy gave me the lyrics and said, you can have whatever songs you want, but see what you can rustle up with character using these lyrics. And um, as I said before, I always need to have something that's me. And I decided that the mother would be a single parent raising her daughter on her own because that had been my experience. Um, and I, particularly at that time, you know, single 
women in particular were being castigated in the media for their you know reckless behavior and their children feral children growing up you know and obviously that wasn't the case for me and that wasn't the case for a lot of my friends who were also single parents and I wanted my hero to be this single woman who had worked hard all her life and just really couldn't understand why her young daughter wanted to get married. You know, it was, it, why, why would you, you know? Um, so having established that was going to be my heart in came the other characters and mm. yeah, it was just so much fun to sit there by myself with the lyrics and thinking, oh, maybe if a woman is singing this, and you know, this is, it, it could be, yeah, and Tanya was formed and Rosie was formed and yeah, they all became a huge part of my life though, obviously a much huger part of my life than I could have imagined mm -hmm. all those years ago. And how long did it take you to do that? Um, all in all, it was nearly two years to go from that meeting with Judy to, you know, the other people coming on board. Philida, the director, was obviously a hugely important part of that, um, as were so many other members of the creative team. But, you know, obviously Bjorn and Benny, too, you know, they were co-producers. They had to approve the idea in the first place. And their sense of humor is fortunately very like mine, um, very Bristolian in its in, in a way, you know, who knew the Swedes were <laughs> quite so deliciously dry and funny. Um, and yeah, you, you know, I don't think you often get an opportunity to write something where everything gels so well you know we call it the mamma mia factor that we all got on so well and complemented one another well there are things i'm not incredibly visual so the design you know i couldn't imagine what it would look like but the first time i saw mark thompson's set i was just bowled over by how beautiful it was and yet so abstract you know it wasn't oh, it was everything yeah and then in rehearsals I was used to all rehearsals being about the text and that was kind of you know humiliating sometimes when you've got a line that will never work but we used to split the day up so it was text in the morning and then the afternoon I could just sit back and watch the choreography and watch the singing and just be like 50% less embarrassed because there was so much, you know, it was glorious. It really was wonderful times. So from 99, January 97 to April 99, that's how long the show took to develop and become the show that's still on stage now because because I, I read as well that when this all sort of started you i think you said that even just to say that you've met you know bjorn and benny that was yeah. going to be like a fun thing to say yeah because the friends i at the time you know we used to go to this aerobics class at the hope center because my kids went to hotwell school and my friend jill um was managing the hope center at the time so she forced us to go to aerobics it wasn't something we particularly wanted to do but jill made us go 
and we used to persuade the aerobics teacher to put on Abba Gold. So it kind of took the sting off it all. We could just sort of throw ourselves into some mad 70s disco dancing. And um, I just thought, oh God, they're going to be so entertained by the idea that I'm doing this. Even if it goes no further than one meeting, at least I've got something to dine out on for the rest of my life. Yeah, you really did. What was yeah. it like when you met them for the first time? Well, I, was, I met Bjorn first because he lived in the UK at that time. And yeah, you know, things have changed so much. Judy and I met at Reading Station and uh, caught, we both caught the train and met in the middle. And we think we got a taxi to Bjorn's. Um, and we were just, you know, Judy already knew them because she'd worked on chess. She was Tim Rice's assistant. So she had been hassling them for this idea and to get the rights to do this idea for a long time. And, you know, but she didn't kind of really make me feel like she was still like, oh, you know, make sure you don't say this, make sure you didn't. But when I got there, I kind of was just myself and I think it started off quite formal and you know feeling nervous but I made a joke and Bjorn roared with laughter and that was that moment where it all kind of went oh it's okay mm. he's funny yeah and then then we had to fly to Sweden to meet Benny. And by that time I'd met Bjorn a couple of times and Benny was reading stuff and approving of it. Philida was now on board. So Benny invited us all over to his for a lovely meal. So we flew over, um, Judy, Philida and I meeting Bjorn and Benny together for the first time. And yeah, I just drank way too much. And again, I'd been told what not to say, which was to say, to, you know, Benny at that time had moved, not been, you know, doing ABBA songs for quite a few years, had his own band, the Benny Anderson Orchestra. And, you know, he was kind of not quite so keen on the idea, I guess. I think he was concerned that it would all be a bit like cheesy. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so... He was talking, we, we'd all had a lot to drink by then. And I just remember distinctly nudging him in the ribs and going, oh, but Benny, you are Abba, you are Abba. And then the next morning thinking, blown it, <laughs> absolutely blown it. But no, they tolerated me and uh, yeah, more than that. tolerated me over the years. Oh, I bet they did. Did you start singing Abba songs and saying, I love you? Yep. I don't want to be reminded of those <laughs> things, you know, oh, it's just, just, it's all a blur. Oh, um, but God, brilliant. ABBA was my life then, you know, that everywhere. I spent all my time with those songs and thinking about them, thinking about them in terms of the script. Anytime I went out, ABBA seemed to be playing at shopping centres and uh, it was, yeah, and it hasn't stopped. That's the thing, yeah. you know, we... People talk about Mamma Mia as if it was a foregone gone conclusion that it was going to be a hit. But actually, just before we were about to open, we only had the theatre for three months. There was a big piece in one of the papers saying, you know, basically everything that Benny feared, you know, who's interested in ABBA now? This is cheesy 70s nonsense. Um, 
so yeah you know perhaps it was a really good thing that we we were happy with what we were doing we had we, we knew we had a good show but i think it was probably a good thing that we didn't know that we had a show with the long long legs of mamma mia because that would have just been too scary to anticipate mm, of course it would. before we move on to that what, what did the ladies at the aerobics say when you'd met them what do you Julian to name the ladies such aerobics um, they probably used you know some unsavory language but they were thrilled you know they they were excited for me and so there's lots of what were they like what were they like what yeah. did you do what did you do what did you say what did they say um and it's kind of like gone on just it's a big tease in a way they still think it's funny that you know I've been to Stockholm a few times and I've met them a few times and it's still kind of you know which one do you fancy the most and you know <laughs> it's still at that level yeah I love that I bet your grapevines in those are I mean I bet you are off when you were doing it with the Abersons, oh. I can't do the grapevine. I've got <laughs> no, I just can't. It's it's the hardest one to do for me, and yeah, I'm sure true. there are a lot harder ones. But I stop at the grapevine. Yeah, okay, yeah. I but I yeah I, I yeah I stop then. We have a bit of cake. Yeah, um, but yeah. So so I mean, and of course, it didn't stop there. So yeah. So you thought it was going to be for three months. I mean, it's like, isn't it like the biggest, longest running show? Or I mean, it's just incredible. And then not only that, it didn't end there, did it? Because then the film. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's not the longest running show, but it's up there. But I would like to say, because this always gets overlooked, it's an all-female writer, producer and director. And we did that in 1999. And mm. people still don't, I think, give that the credit it deserves i mean it was judy's absolute you know non-stopness that got this done mm. and it was judy's non-stopness that got us all on the movie as well because mm. if she had accepted an offer for the film rights within the first couple of years i think her, her hands would have been tied and you would have seen a different writer and a different director but she held out. She wanted Mamma Mia, the show, to be seen, uh, you know, globally once we realised that actually that was its destiny, that it wasn't just going to close in London after three months. So we went to Toronto. We um, opened in Europe, you know. So um, by the time she was ready to talk rights with Universal, there was a 10-year-old show that had proven itself over and over again. It had opened on Broadway. Um, it was, you know, it was pr in pretty good shape. And so resisting the kind of script notes that you can imagine we might have had, like, for example, why do they all have to be so old, you know? Um, I was kind of like, well, you know what? Well, this has proven itself. We we don't actually we have we have more heft in our arguments, and ultimately, you know, the uh, the script notes died away. It was almost kind of like they were just trying it on for the sake of it, and um, they were very supportive. They wanted to capture whatever it was that the magic that Mamma Mia had on stage. 
and translate that to the movie. And by using Philida and I and Judy as the kind of driving force, I think they felt, you know, yeah, we, we did know what we were talking about. Mm. But then, of course, there was the casting, which was a dream come true. Oh. The fact that Meryl Streep had said yes. And without any arm twisting, she just said yes, of course. Um, everyone else fell into place after that. What was that like? That I mean, okay, hang on. Let's just, just I, I'm so conscious of your time, Kathy, but we just, this is such a big Honestly, moment. Don't worry. Cut, cut as much me as you want. I'm happy to go on chatting. There will be, there will be no cutting. There will be no cutting. Um, so, so first of all, so going back to what you were saying, because it's, it's just keeps ringing in my mind what you were saying earlier about how the, like with the television industry, not sort of appreciating, mm. like with, parents and mothers and like you say you're a single mother but this kind of all links doesn't it because there you were the essence the hard work the spirit you're dealing with your young children but you're giving them a lovely home and then you know your work is then sort of picked up and recognized by somebody uh, and somebody like Judy but she got that same spirit and that's the spirit that you put in Mamma Mia in the script that you came up with with the cup of tea because it's all about this female spirit like you say it's the three women there you were and you you know obviously along with with beyond and benny but just created this you know this incredible show performance and then here you are at the doors of like hollywood which i don't think any every in you know, hollywood is 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 the thing isn't it and mm. still that same spirit that came from you all as these you know over that cup of tea you're there and you're i mean that that is, that is magical and amazing just in itself just this this connection yeah. going back to what we're saying yeah. and all goes back to that to the to the shop to the record shop i mean i just yes. think it's a, i never quite got it but that is just amazing catherine it's we have to, somehow someone's got to make a film about this well i mean as an aside for the record shop which is i think like you know happened a couple of years ago for me and i just oh my god this is like my whole life in a capsule i Whilst I was working in the record shop, Mamma Mia was number one. So I just constantly putting that orange sleeved single and selling mm -hmm. it to people and thinking, oh God, Mamma Mia. Here we go and again. Then, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, years later, we weren't going to call it Mamma Mia originally. There was this sort of, you know, weird idea about, oh, let's be really cool and not call it. And then it was like, yeah, it's got to be an ABBA song and it's got, in which case it has to be Mamma Mia, it's about a mother. And also, you know, about that sort of mother that you'll just go, Mamma Mia, about. So that was, you know, the second um, connection. And then, you know, the record, the show, the movie. And then two years ago, Benny asked me to go over to Stockholm because of the ABBA Voyage concert they were creating these avatars. Mm. But to create the avatars, they needed to get ABBA together, the original and only ABBA together, um, to perform. It's because then they could put the suits on them and do whatever technical wizardry to get, create this show. So I said, God, yeah, the opportunity to go come and see this. Um, so I taken into a little tiny studio and there they were mm -hmm. the original ABBA and they sang Mamma Mia and that was where I just went my god my life it's so strange oh, that everything has gone from 
that to this that is incredible that is i mean that's just man you couldn't you actually couldn't write that you couldn't make it up i don't think you could and that would be a lovely hallmark lovely sort of rom-com i think or something like that but yeah the serendipity again i keep using that word but my life has had so much Mm. of those moments where you just think wow it was all leading to this yeah isn't that incredible and that moment when so when you knew it really because I mean I know you know you know you hear this all the time that sort of certain things are optioned and to actually but when you actually knew it was going to be turned into a film and then you Mm. found out that Meryl Streep (laughs) was going to play I mean what where were you when you found that out and how did you feel Oh, I know exactly where I was. It's weird. I can see it so clearly. So there was already a script, I believe. We'd already, you know, worked on the script. So Judy had always promised Villager and I that the movie was going to be made with us. But I'd always thought to myself, I love that Judy is doing this, but I'm not a Hollywood screenwriter. I may write the first draft, but I'd be super surprised if it was just my name on it at the end of all this. But I had written a draft of probably two by then. And they'd started, Fulleder and Judy had started talking about who. And Meryl's name had come up because when the show opened on Broadway, it was right after 9-11. And there had been some, maybe we shouldn't open now and then we were persuaded that actually it was what New York needed something uplifting something you know yeah Mamma Mia ish and it had triumphed possibly you know in in because of that um and Meryl had gone to see the show and had gone backstage afterwards and spoken to the cast and then she'd written a really lovely letter to Lydia and Judy and um, so that was a kind of you know something to go on the wall and always so it was kind of a joke about when we do the movie we'll ask Meryl to play Donna and then it became well why not you know why not just ask her and and see what she says because once she says no we can move on and ask other people so Lydia and Judy had flown over to New York to meet her and I was on the triangle um, I think I was either coming out of boots or um, anyway, I was sort of roughly by that bus stop on the triangle and I'd been waiting for a call and there it was. Judy rang and Philida was on the phone as well and they were both <laughs> screaming. She said yes, she said yes and the, I was up there standing there thinking I want to scream too but how do I explain to the people who are waiting for the bus or going into Sainsbury's or whatever? Um, Meryl Streep's going to be in my movie. You can see it. Oh, that's amazing. And how how did you, how does it work then to write, from uh, having written the play, or the musical rather, to turn it into a film? How, because that was altogether different for you then, wasn't it? Yeah, and I was, I completely messed it up, I think, the first time around. I mean, I had TV writing experience, but this was very different. And um, I kind of took it as an opportunity to really expand on the characters so that everybody got a huge backstory and loads and loads to do. And um, it was about 
200 pages, 250 pages. And we learn so much about Harry and we learn so much about Bill. And it's kind of like, oh God, no, I've gone wrong somewhere. And then I realized that actually what they wanted was for me to transport the show onto into a screenplay as opposed to reinvent Mamma Mia. And once I'd calmed myself down a bit, it, it was really fun to do. It was really fun to open up scenes like, for example, Dancing Queen, because, you know, it's all in the bedroom on the stage. But I knew that I could take it anywhere I wanted to. So once it's on that kind of journey, it just makes sense for Dancing Queen to become not just between the three women, but to get every single woman on the island involved. So it's not just Tanya and Rosie are trying to cheer up Donna. It then becomes an anthem for throw off your shackles. You're the dancing queen. It's it, this is for us. This is one for the girls. So, yeah. And the great thing about Benny and Bjorn are they're, they're really real feminists. So they adored this idea. And of course, Benny said, yes, this too. When I suggested to him that he might play piano in that scene, yes, I will. So, you know, it was, it's moments like that where you realize that film really allows you to fly that with certain things. And also really allows the intimacy. Um, you know, in close-up, you don't necessarily need to have everything spelled out in dialogue because you've just got that look. And then you're working with actors who can convey that look in in a way that's, um, yeah, very, very How long were you special. out there filming? Well, I'm not sure how long they were out there. I was very much like, you know, I, I likened it to being waving off the big ocean liner because I'd done my work by the time they left I'd done nearly everything that was needed to do you know working with Philida working that closely with her she didn't really need anyone on set for rewrites every day but I did go over myself they said so they were probably there three months maybe more I'm just really guessing at that um but I went over for a fortnight um money 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 hadn't been written the the whole you know, we knew what was going to happen, basically, but we weren't. So that was something to be over there for. Um, but I was there when um, the winner scene was shot as well. And that, you know, everybody, the crew would basically sort of go off onto the location. And yeah, I got to kind of hang out on the island. And it was Skiathos. Um, and yeah, we just just had a, an amazing time and do oh, a teeny tiny bit of writing. It was if you're going to work on a film, I think that's the best way to do it. Scopolos, sorry, sorry. Can I just that's say Scopolos? Right. I, I didn't want. To, as I said, I thought I've got that wrong. I don't wrong. think anyone would notice because it's just all so fascinating. But that you know, when you see Meryl Streep or you see like Piers. I mean, when you met them all and Colin, Fett, you know, just these amazing, all of them. What was that, Catherine, what was that like? What was that like just being there? Was it, was it surreal? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think, you know, obviously I'd worked with actors. So what I love about working with actors is that they make a part their own. Um, and, you know, that is a really rewarding process to watch. Sometimes 
less than others but generally i'm working with people where i'm just like blown away by what they're doing whether they're meryl streep or or you know somebody who is you know straight out of um drum school so but it was kind of like the level of star power all at once and it was the first read through i thought was going to be incredibly intimidating but then obviously actors are human as well and they have nerves as well and they were kind of bonding and encouraging each other and being yeah just just so much a part of going back to that mamma mia spirit they they were the absolutely the right people to do this you know they were they fitted and then they Philida managed to get some rehearsal time, um, quite a bit of rehearsal time. So I was lucky enough to be in rehearsal and work on the characters and some lines with them. And Meryl Streep, I guess, is very aware that people are in awe of her. And she's very clever at making you feel comfortable around her so that you can do her work. Uh, sorry, you can do your work, which allows her to do her work. So there were things that came out and there were things that I expanded on, you know, I needed to be able to write to the rhythm of how they were going to express things. And she's quick, you know, she's very clever. And um, I guess maybe I work with her and Piers the most, um, but I, yeah, probably I work with them the most in rehearsals, but I, you know, spent a lot of time watching the choreography again as well. So I had the entertaining watching Pierce and uh, Stalin and Colin doing the um, voulez-vous scene, which I think was quite hard work on them. All these young dancers, <laughs> they were there. It's not like doing it on stage when you're on there for three minutes and then you're off. They were there for a really long time. Having and they to do were that, all remember. really putting themselves out of their comfort zone. A lot of, you know, it wasn't like a typical film, was it? As such as there is such a thing. So again, for you to be part of that, yeah. and, and that came across, wasn't it? it? There was just such a spirit and everyone has a, even when you speak about it now, everyone has a smile on their face when they think about that film. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think they had an absolute blast doing it. They, when they, you know, on going to the island, they felt, it felt like being with a group of friends. They really had bonded. And yes, as you say, you know, maybe feeling out of their comfort zone, but being able to do it with people who were, you know, not trying to one up you or, or, you know, felt that their roles should be bigger. There was a real company feel about it. It was more like being in theatre in some ways because you had these experienced actors and then you had some who were less experienced, although, you know, they'd done a fair amount. Maybe it was their first movie or something, but nobody feeling kind of displaced on it. Yeah, it was a very inclusive, warm cast what a lovely indeed. thing so much negativity and to hear something like that it's just it's like the essence of of lovely life and magic and 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 because because yeah. you said yeah. as well, I, I yeah. read that, um obviously I know Donna was obviously a single mum and you were but also you felt very connected to the character of Rosie played by Judy Waters and that that was that 
you know, how did that feel for you when you were seeing her do? Because she's, I mean, she's, they're all amazing. She's amazing. Well, she's just a comic genius. I mean, most of the funny parts of Rose's performance are Julie Walters invented. You know, it's not in a script. It's not in the direction. It's Julie saying, I'm going to do this. The Going back to Dancing Queen, you know, the... Um, Actually, the choreographer's always been brilliant at this, you know, that the actors use the props and that, and, and you know, I guess on stage, it, it's going to look the same, but every time we get a new cast in, they add a, a little bit of their own sauciness or whatever to it. And working on the bed scene in Dancing Queen, that was very much the three actors, Meryl and Christine, and Julie just exploring and having fun with the choreographer, with Anthony and with um, Philida, just, you know, well, what this and this and this. And just, again, it's kind of like using the lines and going, you know, let's do this, let's have fun with this. You know, those lines of high. And so, you know, they use that to show somebody getting high. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I know it's work for them. I know it's really hard work for them, but they made it look so yeah, well, that's easy. The, the masters at work, isn't it? Or mistresses, should we say? That is, a, and yeah. I, you know, I know, I mean, I could talk about this all day. Did you all have a party when you're out there? Did you go out all together? Yeah, well, I, again, sadly, because I wasn't really there for the big, the partying sort of uh, started okay. earlier. <laughs> and by the time I got there, they were working uh. really hard. They they were having you know the sort of um yeah yeah so I, I sort of missed out I mean I yeah I, I did party you know on some party we you know we had before they went there was a party when they came back there was a party so I had numerous occasions to be around them in, <laughs> in a relaxed way but uh, like I'm sadly I know no drunken shenanigan gossip whatsoever. So. What I'm thinking, Kathleen, is did you ever have that moment with like you had like a little bit tiddly where you told Piers Brosnan, Oh my god, I love you? Because we'd all we'd all we'd give you we'd all be proud oh. of you for doing it. No, I didn't. Um, not because I don't love him, but not in that way. Stellan, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah. If I got a bit tiddly around Stella, and I think there might have been, yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, so then, when you came back, and then, you know, I've seen the pictures, and they're like, you had the, the the premiere, and you can't get more. I mean, you cannot get more. The red carpet, the Meryl Street, the stars. There's pictures of you there with Philida, with Judy, you all with Abba. I mean, all there together. I mean, that moment, Catherine. Again, when you can go back to you in that record shop, and you think, oh, even more. Go back before that to the to you outside your head teacher's door or whatever, and then there you yeah. were. You think of that moment. I mean, how did you how did you feel? Um, nervous, you know, I don't think, you know, I enjoyed it as much as I should have because there's you know, it sounds like there's so much pressure on really. You know, you've got to be there at a particular time, you've got to get out the car, everybody's synchronizing their watches, you've got to make sure you're off the red carpet before Tom Hanks arrives and yeah, I and just yeah, I think I was just anxious um until the champagne started flowing. But I had my family with me, so 
yeah, I think it was also just hoping that they'd have a good time. Um, yeah, it's it's sometimes it's the little the premieres. I don't mean little, but you know, the Stockholm premiere I enjoyed a lot more. Um, mainly because yeah, we did get on the balcony with all four members of ABBA, and that was just extraordinary. Um, and then afterwards, there was a disco in the in the hotel. And, you know, when you're dancing and you can look over and see Frieda and Agneta dancing as well, that's that's quite um, a memory. Yeah. Do you know, maybe I was just so drunk at London. I, <laughs> you, I had, you had your arms around the wall saying another thing. <laughs> that's pretty. And I love, and I will, we'll, we'll move on. But I do love, was it that you went to the Wooten Electric Picture House? Or which is like the local picture yeah. and to see Mamma Mia there, like you say, a Rolls Royce moment for you. I mean, my goodness. Well, that was my dad again nudging me, saying, Go on, go on, tell them who you are. They they'll be pleased to know that you're the I'm like, Dad, I can't, I can't. It's too embarrassing. But yeah, I mean the loveliest part of that was being in Wootton, being with my mum and dad, you know, who had been so wonderfully supportive of me all these years. And you know, to sit there and there's a Hollywood movie and it says Catherine Johnson because I did end up with the only writing credit and uh, you know they're sat there as Mr and Mrs Johnson with their daughter Catherine who didn't turn out quite yeah, so it bad goes back that you know that when your dad got that phone call from the head you know it could have been so different and like you said they were supportive they believed in you and look at that 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 is just it goes to show doesn't it it goes to show yes <laughs> it goes to show they were lucky yeah so so to be continued i mean i know obviously you've done other things i love the story i mean i should also just say i've got to say i mean when i looked as well with the awards is it like there's an olivia award a tony award woman in film and tv award a bafta award national film award golden globe nomination i mean you can't like it's it must i appreciate that that is i mean you you just don't get better than that we always say that's what mary berry says but you, you just don't get better than that but then when you carried on you've done amazing work like when you wrote the i um was it the 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 play suspension you came up with the ideas you walked over the clifton suspension bridge so so although you know we all know about mamma mia life has carried on for you hasn't it and you're st still creating these amazing pieces of work well wonderful thing about mamma mia was suddenly chasing the next payment became less you know but I didn't I wasn't chasing my tail all the time I was able to just step back and I was able to do some work that it was really important for me to do um like you know very low paid or not paid at all so I worked with a local theatre company called Myrtle Theatre Company that worked um particularly with disadvantaged young people I wrote a play with the um teenage young uh teenage mums unit the I want to say the Meriton unit in Bristol um and wrote a play with them um I also wrote a play about young offenders and we did some work with young offenders at Ashfield when it was still uh, a young offender institute um you know, it really opened up opportunities for me that I'd had to turn down in the past because it was like, I'd love to do it, but I need to earn the mortgage. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't 
see myself ever writing another jukebox musical I felt like oh I've done that it was great loved it but it, it was never the path in life that I'd set out to do and yeah it was really good to get back to just writing plays again it was and so moving on to your to be continued because I know as well you're very you're a very um hands-on grandmother as well which comes yeah. as no surprise comes as no surprise I mean to be continued I, you, I mean you, most people say you sort of ticked a lot of boxes there Kathleen but what is there what would you like to do next is there anything you'd like to do next yeah I just I mean I do just want to carry on writing I mean I have had you know I've been right I have been writing non-stop you know things have fallen through it's not a good time for theatre at the moment, as we know, the, you know, especially regional theatre. I've got a couple of ideas that are looking for a producer at the moment. And then I've got like, you know, notebooks full of ideas that I think, oh, I'll get around to that someday. And, you know, one of them is today that I'll be working on later. Um, I was talking to an old writing acquaintance of mine uh, just a couple of months ago um, and then you know I was saying oh it's been a rough time really you know he was saying the same you know he'd written scripts and he'd got nothing produced and I said oh same here and then I said mind you you know obviously it doesn't count because of and he said of course it counts you know you're a writer you want to be writing and I said yeah absolutely it Mamma Mia is wonderful that I've had that that I've still got that but actually going back to when I was six years old writing my first story, I, I just wanted to write. So yeah, my ambition is to is to get another commission, I guess. Yeah, but it, it like we said at the beginning, it's part of you, it's in you. And this is what mm. anyone listening, because and this obviously is all about sort of next chapters. And if something's in you, and even somebody listening to this and they're later on in life, it's so important it comes out, isn't it? Because if you keep ignoring it, You've got to get that part of you yeah, out in the um, world somehow. Peter Flannery, who wrote Our Friends in the North, once said something that I've always taken to heart, which is that he puts it off and he puts it off until it hurts more not to write than it does to write. And I think there's so much truth in that. I can ignore the compelling idea I can think, oh, I haven't got time to do that today. But there does come a point where all the distractions just aren't good enough. I do actually have to really get that idea I out. That. I absolutely can. For your, for your acknowledgements, Catherine, who would you like to thank? Oh, oh there's so many people, obviously. You know, I, I mean, obviously my parents and my brother and sister. And my children, Hugh and Mivy, who have also been inspirational and, you know, as, as well as uh, encouraging and supportive, even if there were times when Mivy wasn't incredibly keen on Mamma Mia, she did like <laughs> to do the trips across the world. Um, then there are my friends who have also been a great inspiration and the strangers who don't know how they've inspired me, but they've done something that I've thought, oh, okay, I could write about that. Um, Terry Johnson, of course, and, and Dominic Drumgall, who was also my pathway into writing by 
picking my play out of the uh, sludge pile twice. He chose my play for the Bristol Law Vic when I wrote under a pseudonym. And then when I sent my play in to the bush, um, he also picked that out of the unsolicited scripts, this time under my name, not knowing it was the same person. So yeah, I'm very grateful to Dominic too. Um, my agent, I feel like this is the Oscars. Yeah. My lovely two agents, Bash, who left, and Stephen, who took me on afterwards. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, my friend Donna, who gave her, gave, gratefully gave her name to Mum <laughs> and the Judy and Philida, everybody, um, Bjorn and Bernie. Oh God, <laughs> is there, there's, I would just say that anybody I've ever encountered in my life has had some ripple effect, whether they know it or not. Mm. So everybody really who have made me what I am today. Thank you. Mm. Even the dogs. Well, we thank, we thank them as well because we all love Mamma Mia and we all love the show and the film it's just incredible and it's it's interesting what you say there about with because obviously what comes through again we're going back to this but like the female friendship and be, who you know you've had great female friends in your life and it's so important and I, I'll tell you this so you know I always when I started this podcast you were one of the first people I wrote down that I would like to invite on here and my I would always tell my friend uh, Melissa Melissa Law and I'd say this and, and I'd be I'd feel too nervous to oh, no. and it's like but it's like what you say some Sometimes you just have to, you just have to do it. You know, you asked Meryl, um, yeah, you asked Meryl Streep. I asked you. That was like my, mo that was my moment. And, and she, she really encouraged me. And her mum, Vicky, um, Vicky Pennell, she, they're, they're huge fans of Mamma Mia. And I knew they wanted to hear your story as well. So that encouraged me. And when I said to her that you were going to do it, and I messaged her and she was so pleased. It goes to show when you've got lovely, they're so supportive. When you've got people like that in your corner, you can create an even better one you know yeah. and I've linked you know spoken with you it, it it doesn't have to be so hard does it when we get also worried that oh she's gonna say no and she's gonna think I'm silly for even asking but you didn't yeah. so it's amazing isn't it I'm really sorry that you thought that because no, I would have thought would yeah. as we had spoken in the past that you knew I'd be approachable but I completely get this way we do this whole narrative that yeah, I'll ask her and she'll say no. And then she'll talk about me to all her friends and say, yeah. oh, look what she did. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Especially so in Yate. Really inhibit each other. Yeah, you, your name would be Mud in Yate for daring <laughs> to ask. It's kind of, we are all just wanting a helping hand at times. Mm. And uh, when you think about it, what a treat for me to be asked though. Wow. It, you know, why would anyone be interested in my life is, is the way I'm coming at it. Yeah, I think uh, Vicky and uh, Melissa will be listening to this and they'll be thinking we're very interested in your life, So as I am. Oh, so thank you. Lovely. Melissa is my second granddaughter's name. So I'm very fond of the name Melissa. Look at that. It's all coming round again. Yeah, here we go. Here again. Goes. Yeah. Here she goes. So, so somebody listening to this. Okay. So somebody's listening and they are thinking. And going back to what you were saying at the beginning, where like at school, you felt you were really not very good at a lot of things. And move that on now that someone's listened to this, uh, that they're older, but they still feel, do you know what? I don't feel that great at something, but I know know 
that I am not living my life in the way that I should. I am not reaching my full potential, but I I don't know what I want to do. First of all, what would you say to that person? Okay, if you don't know what you want to do, I'm right. Because <laughs> I looked at this question earlier and thought, what would I say? But I don't know, what would you do? Um, try things, try things that you think you, I mean, you have an idea when I'm, I think, I suppose I'm thinking about somebody who's a bit older now, um, that you do have an idea of what you enjoy, maybe pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone is a really helpful thing to do. Um, because if you have always wanted, for example, to ride a motorbike, but not got round to it yet. I mean, have a go. You might hate it, you might fall off, but at least you know you've tried it. Um, and when you're at school and everybody's pushing you to have a career option, I still think you've kind of listened to yourself, listened to your instincts, listened to where you, you, you do sort of know. You can try other things, but somewhere there is something in you that's telling you this is what I want to do. But uh, all our identities keep changing all the time anyway. So me going, oh, I can't do maths. If I really cared to, I would have a go at learning how to do maths. I just really not interested. <laughs> you don't need to, I don't think now. I think you you do enough of the other stuff, to be honest, Catherine. And, and somebody who does know what they want to do, who've got a real passion for something, but feel feel silly going back to how you you know when you didn't think that you would ever be able to make a career out of your writing and somebody now has got an interest they think oh but you know I'm just I've got an eye for it I like interiors but I don't think anyone will ever pay me to being in you know to do their interiors or I like fashion or all these different things that we might want to do what would you say to that person because you that moment when you saw even like the the film Mamma Mia you've written that and you then have to sit and you have to watch and you watch the audience like you did with the plays you must have felt so vulnerable. So you, yeah. what would yeah. you say to that person who just can't, you know, they feel so frightened at the idea of, of putting themselves out there? Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I think this is something because I've been doing a meditation practice now for two years and it's really helped me to see how we can be so self-destructive with this idea of, you know, oh, I'm not very good and, it shouldn't be doing this or um and how anxious it made me for so long and if it hadn't been for being picked up young ish but you know i probably would have stopped and would have always regretted perhaps oh you know maybe i should have tried to do this so what i think is like acknowledge how you feel how vulnerable you feel but still do it anyway you know it's like even if um you haven't got a full day to be working on the thing that you want to be doing snatch time to do it another thing that i've learned is you know many times and but small times you know if you've only got 10 minutes to do something towards your goal grab those 10 minutes and do it don't say i need to have a full week working on this if you've got it's very, very hard, I know, because part of me is thinking, how do you break into things? Um, but another thing that I've just started doing is um, I never joined a writing group because I never wanted to show my work. But I thought, 
I would be nice to have the support in some ways. So I joined a writers group where basically you just log on for an hour and there's all these other people writing for an hour and then you log off again. You don't have to talk. I mean, obviously you don't talk when you're writing, but you can if you want to. And just by doing that for a little while, I've realized that there's a whole community of globally of people who are doing the same thing as I'm doing. And it's really encouraging. I don't know how that would work in other fields, like say, and whether there's an interior design group you could join, but the encouragement I think you get from other people that are doing the thing that you want to do it, it, it's it's worth approaching people like you approached me mm. and like you know I had Terry's masterclass if you and we'll go back to interior design again but if that's something that you feel you have a gift for what would be the harm in emailing somebody working in interior design and saying could I have a chat with you about how to get started mm. it's you know fun motivate yourself be um, but never ever let that little oh you're not very good voice overcome your strong brave heart I think mm. and I should just say as well because when we met we met a few years ago when I interviewed you for my for my day job at, at ITV yeah. and 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 I'd written my first book that was being rejected all the time and and you know it was and you were so and I remember my husband saying you're gonna have to tell her you're gonna just have to tell her and I was like, oh. so I did and again it is that and I felt and you were so warm and and even when I published it myself eventually years later and I, I sent you a copy and you took it and you know you were so lovely about it and to ha you know that means such a lot and it gives you a boost that it's so yeah. worth doing that however like even me asking you to do this today it's it's just always worth it isn't it it's worth the risk mm. Mm. but what are we risking really by yeah. doing it nothing you're not risking anything by asking I mean you know luckily I really enjoyed your book but <laughs> I kind of thought I would oh. you know it just from talking to you I thought you you can do this and you will do this and now as you say you're on your fourth which I think is absolutely amazing, uh, you know, and I, yeah, I think, oh, I'd love to write four novels. That sounds so much fun, knowing probably it's, as you said, it's not all fun, but we aren't risking anyone by just anything by approaching another person. Mm. It, you know, if, if they're not nice back, they're not important people to have in your life anyway. So, yeah, in I, I think because people have always not always but mostly given me support. It's I, I lovely just to pass it on. Oh well, Catherine, you have been amazing. Your story, I mean, it's a hallmark uh, film. It's more than that. I, it's a holy. I, I'd come and see it at the you know the electric cinema with you. It's just... yeah. The only yes, yeah, so I just need the strong man to embrace at the that's end right. and tell me to give up writing because you yeah. know that's <laughs> maybe a baker who's outside making the cake that you need. Maybe that's what we could put in the story. Yeah, yeah. I don't need cake, unfortunately. I should, should but now that you've said it, it's a. It's a tiny stroll down to the coffee 
place just by the bridge. It's, yeah, uh, I know the one. Picture them now, because yeah, okay. Yeah, well there you go. But you, you know, you just you make Bristol. Yeah, and thank you again. We haven't even touched on it about Bristol, but just it's so special. And to know you're here, I say when I go on my run, and I know that you live over on the other side of the bridge. I always <laughs> give you a little wave, and I will. And I just say, Kathleen, thank you for just being such an amazing, wonderful, magical guest on the next chapter. Ellie, that is such a nice thing to say. And thank you so much for having me and, you know, giving me a, lo a lovely way to spend a Tuesday morning. So, yeah, good luck with your next 42,000 words. I shall be thinking of you. So there you are. What did you think of that? You see, I told you she was a superstar. I mean, there's so much to think about, isn't there? But, well, I just love that. What are we afraid of? Why do we do it to ourselves? Who knows where it will take us if we just give something a go? Now, this is the last in this series, but I'll be back very soon with some more incredible Next Chapter guests. If you could rate and review this episode, well, that would be marvellous. Even better if you could subscribe. This would be amazing and may help someone else with their next chapters. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with me and my books at elliebarkerwrites.com. I'd love, love to hear from you. But until the next time, go on, send that email. I think you can do it and Catherine does too. Speak soon. <laughs>